welcome back to Bread Beard Radio. I am Alana, I am your host, and we have Drew Austin again, the founding partner of Bread Beard Ventures. This week, we're going to talk all about Web3 Gaming, and we have a special guest from our portfolio company, Zedrun. And for those of you who actually don't remember Zedrun, think back to COVID when you would see people just being online and racing horses. You're actually seeing one of the top people who are racing horses on this call today, Drew Austin. But in short, Zedrun is an online blockchain-based game and virtual horse racing platform that allows players to buy to breed, to sell and brace sigil horses using NFTs and blockchain-based technologies. So Drew, I know that you syndicated this deal really at the peak market. Everybody was interested in Zedrun. Can you touch on a little bit about how you first got involved in Zedrun and how you, it ended up leading to you investing in the company? Yeah, of course. So um, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back. And uh, really excited. This could be a fun, fun topic today to talk about, which is, you know, kind of general Web3 gaming and then dig in with the Zedrun, uh, dig in about Zedrun specifically. But um, yeah, Zedrun, so like, you know, back 2021 during the, during the, like the heart of the early days of NFTs really coming back, I'd say there was this like period of time where NBA Top Shot was like the biggest driver, in my opinion, of new adoption for, for people that were like, kind of just like entering into NFTs considering I've been around since 2018. So I was collecting art on super rare and, you know, getting into born apes and getting into all these different types of NFT projects. But, um, you know, the masses really weren't there yet. Then top shot came. So you had all these sports fans starting to enter into the web three space. They're getting into NFTs. They're making money. They're trying to figure out what to do next. And, Zed Run came onto the scene. Now, I was following Zed Run for, for a few months before the it really took off. Um, I was spending my night. I was I, the minute I experienced it. It was I, the way I looked at the, the explain Zed Run to people. I've had like three moments in NFTs and in the NFT space that really made it click for me in the early days. The first one was when I first bought my first piece of art on Super Rare, when I felt that 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 feeling of ownership of art for the first time and feeling like proud that this was mine and just like I felt and how it was so similar to how I feel when I buy a physical piece of art. Um, that was my first like eye-opening moment that digital assets and digital collectibles is something that's going to be here for the long term. The second moment I had was when I opened my first pack of NBA Top Shot moments. And I, it brought me back to when I was a kid, so excited to see what was in the pack and the ability to buy and sell with one click. I, you know, that my thesis immediately was the future of sports card collecting. And in 10 years, when my kids uh, open up, you know, start to collect basketball cards, they'll be collecting Top Shot moments. My third moment was when, and I remember it vividly, I was, I was playing Zed Run. I, was, uh, I had a few horses. I was racing them. I bought this like Z10 horse, for like, which was a Z10, which was, you know, one of the cheaper Genesis horses. Um, you know, there was Z1 to Z10, and Z10 was a cheaper Zed horse. And it turned out to be a great performing horse, and it won two races in a row. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, like this is a real asset on my hands. It's going up in value. I'm getting offers on it. And it was the first time I felt this feeling of like, you know, in horse racing, you bet on a horse. You don't know the name of the horse. You never, you know a number, you root for a number, and then five minutes later, that horse disappears, and you never have any relationship to it again. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling a sense of ownership to this horse that's racing. It's my horse. It can accrue value. If I understand what distances it can race at, um, it becomes more and more valuable. So that feeling was one of the three major moments to me that really like, like were the eye-opening experiences for NFTs. Fast forward, I spent many nights with, uh, with the founders, Rob and Chris, uh, talking to them in Australia. So I was probably up till one, two in the morning, which is actually kind of normal for me. So it works. But um, I was up to one, two in the morning, getting to know the founders. And, you know, I found myself playing a role with the team very early on of being a kind of like their, their almost their bridge to the U.S. audience. I was talking about it. I was publicly speaking about it. I ended up bringing a lot of like influencers and celebrities to the platform. I remember I introduced uh, Jerry Ferrara, Turtle to Turtle from Entourage, his first horses to Zed Run, Darren Ravel, his first horses from, uh, you know, Darren Ravel, his first horses to Zed Run, Michael Carter Williams, the NBA basketball player. So I, I remember being very um, kind of active with helping people get access to horses, get into the gaming experience, get into the ecosystem. Uh, and yeah, it just took off 
then it was, uh, you know, fast forward when it was time for them to raise funding. That was like really my first major educational investment experience for myself. It was a very competitive deal. Um, it was really hard to get into. Everyone was clamoring to get into this deal. Um, and, you know, I've always respected Rob and Chris because the big, some of the biggest investors, you know, ultimately the round came together. It was the Chernin Group, which ended up leading the deal, um, who I brought them into the deal. I introduced them to Chernin Group. And then we brought Andreessen Horowitz and then Redbeard. Those are the three funds that really kind of participated or, you know, our, we were a syndicate at the time that participated in their seed round. But it was one of the most competitive deals, and it took a really long time to get done. Um, but you know, ultimately, they never wavered by making sure that we hadn't remained, uh, continued to have an allocation, even though there was so much competition from bigger funds to get an allocation in the round. They they, they remained true and saw the value that we brought um, to their business, and and that we continued to like to bring even as they were going through their their fundraise. Um, and they maintained our allocation and we invested. And I remember the, the craziest thing. It was, um, we opened up the syndicate. Uh, I opened up the syndicate. We had a million dollar allocation. I went up and I, I, I sent out the posts like we normally do on AngelList. And I came back to the, and I went out and had dinner. I came back to the computer an hour later and there was over 3 million committed. So That's we were talking about in one hour, there was $3 million committed. So we ultimately had to return $2 million because um, we only had a million dollar allocation. There was no way to get any more at that time. Um, so it was just, it was a highly competitive deal. It was a really exciting moment. Um, it was one of like my, like kind of first real kind of like cut your tie moments in venture that um, as an investor, where I really got to see how competitive it is for investors to get into a deal and secure an allocation. And, and really the competitive advantage you have by being a value-added investor and building real relationships and meaningful relationships with the founders. So it was really educational. It was a fantastic experience. And, you know, I was also like, and this is like, you know, for me, what's so special about investing in companies like Zebron is I was an early, I started as a user first. You know, I was, I still own, you know, over a hundred horses, mostly Genesis, some raced, some unraced. I know me and my buddy Alex ended up buying a horse for like, what was it? Maybe 50,000 or something dollars at the time. And it was the third horse ever minted. Um, so it's like an OG horse, the first third horse ever minted Z1. Uh, his name is Millions. Um, so there was like, so like in the early days, especially the energy was incredible. There were horses that were becoming almost like celebrities. Um, it was the church to me, Zed run is the first and, and still, still to this day, the, um, most, uh, like the most well-executed and well-established web three game I've come across to date. Um, you know, I've seen, I think that, you know, Web3 gaming, we know is going to be uh, a major driver of adoption. We could talk about this as we discuss our thesis. But I still think to, to this day, Zenrun has been, has was the pioneer of Web3 gaming and is still um, one of the most influential games in the entire space. Yeah. And I think uh, Zenrun actually got so many people first involved in NFTs. I think that was actually the first one that I got along with Ada and my fiance. We both put in money and we bought it. We never raced it, but I think you just saw it growing. And I think what you said is perfect where you saw that ownership and feeling like you had a part, you actually own this horse and then you could continue to race it and grow it and breed it. And that was super exciting. And I think that's what got a lot of people involved. So I know we're going to be having Brian on later. So I want to touch a little bit more as gaming as a whole. And you mentioned that Zedrum was kind of one of the best games that you have seen lately. Like, what is it about it that really caught your attention? And what do you think people need to really look for in the space when they're seeing these Web3 games emerge? Yeah, I think that, you know, the first thing to me is like, we I have a thesis in general, besides just like digital gaming, but also in physical sports, that ownership and fandom are a very powerful combination. So it, when, when you have a vested interest in a team, in a horse, in an athlete, in something that also correlates to competition and rooting for and fandom, the, uh, the, the idea of having a vested interest in that asset, in that person, in that team, just accelerates fandom at an exponential level. So to start, I think that's a huge component of this. And like, you know, we've seen it with Swoops Basketball, another um, Redbeard syndicate investment, where like, People take ownership of teams, there's competitions, there's tournaments, there, et cetera. And people feel that connection to the team that they own. Um, so I think that ownership 
is at the is at the foundational level in the combination with fandom. And then I think it's about um, I think another thing that I learned very early on from Zen Run is discovery is a big part of the journey. So like the discovery process around you know how to utilize data how to understand the analytics, how to optimize your horse to the right distances and make sure it's competing in the right places. There needs to be a journey that the user can go on to somehow correlate their investment in money and time to performing better so they feel like it's worth their time to be able to outperform others to then gain the reward. And I think that's a really important part of the gaming experience in general, like you see even with pro gamers, like there, there's a reason why people play a video game. And even I think back to when I was a kid, you know, there were friends of mine that got, that played Bond all the time. And the kids who played Bond all the time beat everybody else and felt more confident and competed and won. And when we played for money, they would win. And, and it was like, there's some, there has to be something to be said that practice and participation and engagement are going to reward you in some capacity as a gamer. And I think that they did a very interesting job, even in a game that is hands-off, which, which is more of a, like you, you kind of are managing your organization, but you're not actually like racing it. It's not like a hands-on racer. It's you're, you're, you're buying, selling, breeding, determining what races, what distances. It's more of like kind of like a sim-based game, if you will. But, um, you know, those, those, um, those experiences, like that experience of being able to make decisions and to put time to them really needs to be rewarded. Yeah. And I think, I think about Pokemon because I was a big Pokemon player. I was a collector of the different cards. First off, like the cards that you collected never correlated to the game and the characters that you had, but then you're spending all this time growing and into the game. And then eventually it's just like, okay, what's next? Like, how do you take an idea like Pokemon or even like Pokemon Go, which utilize like VR and make it so that there's more ownership involved and maybe even interoperability between other assets that you could then. Well, I think that's a great point. I think like in the, in the world of Web3, I think that one of the things we're going to have to think about um, is that the it's going to take an ecosystem of games to be able to continue to like think about it. Like I don't play Madden 64 or Madden 2013. I, you know, I'm going to play Madden 2024. So like that's 10 years of new games that you're, that if you had ownership of assets, you would be able to retain those things and bring them with you. So when one game got outdated, you know, you could bring the value that you've accumulated with you to the future games. I don't, you know, it's not, I'm not playing the original Zelda as much anymore. I'm playing the new one. I'm not, I, you know, I don't get to play these games as much in period, but I'm just saying that the point of it is there needs to be an economy of gaming experiences so that and that, so that currency and assets and value can correlate because games have a life have a lifespan um at least most of the games that i've experienced now some games you can go on and on like there's like the minecrafts of the world world where a game like minecraft can last decades but even those games have mo have modified versions and and all different types of updates and modifications etc so I guess what I'm trying to say is that like in Web3, we have to think almost as a gaming ecosystem, not just a game. And I think that's why we're still looking for that breakthrough in like, in you know, two years later from Z after Zed Run, there still haven't been many monumental games that have entered into the space and like been the next great driver of, of, of Web3 and crypto adoption. And I think that's because we're still trying to figure out how do these assets um, retain value over time? How do you continue to uh, kind of like bring this ecosystem together and make these games have one kind of like, um, you know, kind of have a, a connection between them, if you will. So, you know, I think that when I, when I kind of think back now, I, um, I think that like Zed Run is, is really interesting because you have these horses that I've bought early on and they have history, they have a, they have a legacy, they can bring breeding value, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I think that a big part of how we're gonna see this whole space thrive is through the idea that there will be a network and an ecosystem and some kind of correlation. And I have a feeling it'll connect back to identity and your digital identity and how your digital identity evolves based on the games you've excelled at, the assets you've accumulated, and the wealth you've accumulated in this digital gaming um, economy, if you will. 
Okay, let's go back to that for a second. Then I want to bring on Brian. But okay, when you're talking about it all connecting to your digital identity, like what will it look like? So I have these Zed Run horses. I'm doing really well. They're growing now. I'm the top racing horse in the history. How will that relate to other games? Or will it just be a completely new ecosystem of games where then it will be like all throughout, as you mentioned, like Zelda going up in their different levels? So It, it depends. I think there's going to be different things. I think there's going to be games that... Like one, like there's going to be like, for example, there might be the Madden type of style where every year there's updates and new releases and new drafts um, and those and having the legacy and the history, almost like a dynasty like um, experience. There's going to be that type of, of game where you know, every year new things happen and, or new game event, no, new gaming experiences within that game IP update the game, change the game, evolve the game, but your assets um, evolve in value as the as the longevity of the game continues to go on. I think there are going to be other games where if you think about, let's like, like look at, there's Madden, but then there's EA Sports in general. EA Sports has FIFA, NBA, NFL, all these different sports games. Now, if I own assets in NBA, NFL, and FIFA across the EA Sports network of games, how will a currency or how will assets accumulate? Maybe I want to say I acquired a um, rare football cleat in Madden because I uh, won the, the championship and, and got a great pair of new cleats. But I'm not that into Madden right now. I'm really focusing on FIFA. So I could sell my FIFA cleats, buy um, sell my Madden cleats, use that currency to buy FIFA cleats and be better performing in FIFA at the time. So that, you know, I think there's an, an element of having a network um, level of games that can benefit each other um, and allow people to move from game to game while bringing assets and value with them is going to be essential. I think that the, the ultimate, you know, my ultimate thesis here is that it is going to take a web to a major web to gaming IP to, um, to, to really bring the next wave of adoption. I think that will be the driver of the next wave of adoption of NFTs. And my example is like, let's say you're in, let's say Grand Theft Auto releases a game that connects to the, the Web3 NFT space. You go out there and so new users who, you know, that's a billion dollar gaming IP. The people that have played Grand Theft Auto are gonna follow that game to different types of platforms as, it, as they always have. So Grand Theft Auto comes out, you steal a car in the game that's a rare car, only a few of those exist within the entire gaming industry, within that entire gaming IP. There's scarcity now, because think about it, in the past, you know, a game, everyone can get this, like, everyone could get the ocarina of time, you know, because they got to a certain point in the game. But in a game that lives in Web3, where ownership and scarcity can be introduced, um, certain people can accumulate an asset, and that might reduce the ability for other people to get that asset in the game. So there's an element of scarcity. Now, that person goes and takes that car that they just stole in Grand Theft Auto and go on OpenSea and sell that game. Let's say that that's, and now all of a sudden they get five or $10,000 in crypto into their wallet. These people are gonna go through, a, uh, go through a very similar trajectory as many of us did. And they're gonna do, a, and my thesis is this is what brings the, the next wave of adoption and gets us out of the bear market for NFTs. Because they're, what they're gonna do is they're gonna be like, whoa, NFTs have value. Then they're going to say, well, let me look into this and see what were the original historic NFTs. That's where crypto punks are going to start to get demanded again. Wait, I can get basketball cards on the NFTs? That's where they're going to go to Top Shot. Then they're going to look into art and collectibles, and they're going to see the Fuocious and the X copies, and they're going to find out about the history of this space. And like any other collector of any other industry, they're going to they're going to they're going to follow that trajectory into the things that got us here. And the new stuff that's evolved from that point. So, you know, listen, the 99% or 95% of the NFT space and gaming assets will probably go to shit. But I do believe that assets that helped us get here, the Zed runs, the NBA top shots, the, the one of one art, the, the high end collectibles, those are the things that will have another go around and another, um, another demand cycle because of the fact that people are going to be discovering a journey. And that journey is something that we are all used to. It's like when you're a sports card collector, you go after rookies. You go at like, that's just a known thing of cardboard. So like when you go to digital, 
you're going to try to buy a rookie basketball card because you're used to saying those are the things that have value. So I, I, that's my whole thesis around NFTs in general, but I also think that gaming, once people come in with it from a, a Web 2 IP game, uh, Web 3 will have its have its moment in the sun. And I think we'll see a, a, a slew of Web 3 games start to enter the space. And I think we'll never go back. I think that the, the future of gaming will only be what I call productive gaming. Um, the history of gaming has been unproductive, where you play a game for purely the fun of it. The future of gaming will be you play a game for the fun of it, but you earn in that process. And once people experience that, they'll never go back. There's just no, how will you compete? I mean, I don't know why they're not using it yet. I think the fact that they could make it so it's scarcity, there's only the top of the top players get to earn. I mean, I think Ready Player One was my biggest kind of adoption where you kind of see it where you could only get the best players if you either play the game a crazy amount or if you have money to go buy it. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's really what you're saying. It's like, hey, if you play the game enough, if you earn the best players, the best characters, you could either sell those or their actual assets. But your time is now an asset. It's not just for fun, as you're mentioning. So I think that's huge. And yeah, no, I, 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 that's totally correct. I mean, there's, 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 you have to cater to both audiences. You have to cater to the people that will pay because they bring the money into the ecosystem and you have to get, cater to the people that'll play because they drive the most engagement. And you have to build a gaming experience that can cater to both of those and they have to be able to coexist. And that's probably the biggest challenge any one of these companies face is they haven't been able to figure out how to balance catering to the whales that are going to put money into the market while still enabling the, the players that can't afford to but are willing to engage at the fullest capacity and make the game fun, they them having an equal opportunity to be able to compete. That is the hardest challenge these games face. Probably the topic I'm going to discuss, I want to discuss with Ryan the most is like, how do you do that? How do you figure out and, and find that balance? Well, I think that's a perfect transition. Let's bring up Ryan. Guys, for everybody listening, if you haven't already, please give us a like and subscribe. Also, later in the show, we're going to be sharing out our syndicate link. We share a ton of different deal flow in this space specifically, as well as any frontier tech. So Ryan, let's bring you up and welcome to Redbeard Radio. I am hey, how are you guys doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you very much for having me. Ryan, what's up, buddy? How we doing? Pretty good. That was an impressive breakdown there. You had me going through all the uh, the feels and the motions of the last two years, for sure. That's right. Yeah. Definitely. Ryan, how long how long have you been with the team for? Um, I've been with the team a little over a year and three months now, but obviously I've been you know ground floor on Zed since uh, early 2021. I got into the game right in that exact transition period that you talked about. Got into Top Shot with my buddies, um, and then found Zed Run, and then we as basically in the similar way, never looked back because uh, we bred one of the best horses in the game. And that spiraled into uh, this which, crazy which journey. Horse? Me now. Vanilla Bean mean? was the name. No doubt. That sounds familiar. I remember. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was so cool. And in in, especially in the early days, which I think is still something that like, listen, this is, it is a very hard, hard, hard job to be able to like be the early adopter and then sustain and continue to it grow and, and and never and especially in a space where you know there's so much animosity and so much like it, it's a roller coaster in and of itself to continue to like you know to continue to, to to sustain that growth curve. But like one of the things I thought was so fascinating in the early days was how I would jump on that game and I was familiar with horses. You know what I mean? Like right. I knew the um, what were some of the early names of horses that were like the famous ones if you remember. Like there was Billions. There was oh, like. Yeah. Curry, Breathless Edge, Grandeur. Edge, yep. Oh, yeah. What was the other one you just said? Grandeur. Oh, yeah, totally. So, yeah, like, the red one beside there, and racing on for a while. Totally. There were stables that everybody knew. You know, there was, totally. there was and, and I think that that was um, a really um, special kind of period of time because people were, be and, it, and it was exactly what I imagined this space to be in in the future which is the assets become stars and athletes mm -hmm. themselves the owners become stars and celebrities themselves um the community becomes content creators creates jobs i had a i had someone who managed my me and my buddies he was like a, a stable manager and yeah. like between me and my friend we had 200 horses he would manage our stables breed the horses sell horses race horses and took a percentage like this was everything, in my opinion, that Web3 is about. It is It created an economy 
in and of itself, where Definitely. there was job opportunities, content creation, organically generated from the community, people building applications, developing data and analytics products, marketplaces. It was the most, you know, those early days, I think it was the most beautiful example of, of Web3 and gaming um, kind of introduce introducing to the world, um, and I, you know, again, I, and I'd I'd love to hear about the journey and you know where you and how you guys have like, you know, kind of went through that high to then some of the lows and then where you are today. So love to talk about that journey and and like and how did you kind of enter in it? What was your background? How did you find your way in there? Yeah, so uh, my professional background, I was a equities trader at a firm in New York City for three years, um, and then obviously when we found Top Shot and we found uh, Zed Run, we found <laughs> NFTs in general. I think there was a natural proclivity to get engaged because I was managing money at the time. I was used to you know risk reward analysis, looking for things to do like trading all day every day at my firm. Um, so I was you know very interested in the idea of engaging in kind of a uh, open marketplace like this, right? And when we got into Zed, my uh, friend Tyler Close and I had bred vanilla bean with a, a bunch of our other buddies. And the horse was doing so well at the time that we were like, we need to figure out a way to track what's happening here, right? So he's a software developer, full stack. And he was like, I'll build a website that we can kind of keep track of everybody's horses. Like, why not? Let's just allow it so that everybody can look into all this. And kind of from that idea, Know Your Horses was born, right? So he and I founded Know Your Horses. And within like two or three months, we were getting a ton of um, uh, interest in trying to bring us full time to do that. Again, this is like in that exact network effect you're speaking of, right? Where there were content creation opportunities, data analytics, everybody was looking for edge, right? Which is like the, you know, the sole driver of spaces like this. Um, while still trying to hang on to those real core value propositions that differentiated the space from the rest of the market, right? Gambling products, gaming products in general, which I do believe you're right, is that asset ownership layer, right? So we created this way to, you know, track horses. We ended up getting acquired by Lucky Trader, um, Peter Jennings and Jonathan Bales. And we worked with them for a year. RBV investment, actually. Yeah, 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 totally. And uh, it's funny, you brought up the, the millions uh, purchase. I remember that moment like it was yesterday because it got posted and I was like fly, pe texting Peter, like flying around trying to figure out how to get it. And then I saw you you guys bought and I was like, oh. We swooped in. Yep, we yeah. swooped in. Yeah, because that, you know, that was a big one at the time because, uh, you know, horse mints number one and two are basically like <laughs> uh, completely locked down in, in dead wallets at this point, um, just yeah. from, you know, early, early Zed run days. Oh, oh yeah. But um, so the journey for me personally was kind of managing that data analytics software and trying to get as good at the game as possible, right? Because we were providing that uh, access to edge for users who were looking to try and, and, you know, find an advantage on the platform or just kind of understand how to identify distance preference, you know, variance and those concepts of, uh, of like upside potential and, and breeding outcomes and all of that stuff. So we built that, that platform and service and then kind of um, I was with Lucky Trader working specifically trying to support Zed as much as I can. There was a time where like the DAU on Zed and the DAU on Know Your Horses were identical, right? Because it was such a companion app at that time that, um, you know, there's kind of, yeah, there's like a depreciating rate of returns for trying to build your own, you know, platform that if it, one already exists. So we kind of were constantly in this like, you know, pseudo chats of like, should we be working, you know, with Zed? Should we be you know, continuing, like, how do we spin off our own revenue model here? Like, do we sell access passes? Do we go subscription-based? So Tyler and I were working with Peter and, you know, trying to figure out what the best way to monetize what we were doing was, because if you don't monetize and you don't have any level of revenue generation, none of these things are sustainable, right? And that's mm -hmm. like, like big light bulb moment that I think a lot of companies and products have had over the course of like the last year and a half, right? Where all of a sudden you don't have the ability to just generate a ton of funds from an initial mint. Right. Because no one's interested in anything like that unless the core value proposition is incredibly clear. Right. I have access to a game. I have access to events. I get something for this. It has utility. Right. Which I still believe is the biggest differentiating factor for NFTs overall. Um, and at that time, Zed was like the main, you know, utility based NFT. We already had a functioning game. Right. So I, long story rare, short, go ahead. Rare, which was very rare. Yeah. hundred percent. Everybody else had a right? white paper or a game on their roadmap. Yeah, Nobody yeah, yeah. Like we're building something. It's going to be sweet, you know. Um, and at that time, I could tell that, you know, there was some level of disconnect between kind of what was being communicated to the, the players, right? What kind of what we were engaging with, what we knew about what the direction of the game was. 
um, and, you know, kind of what was happening with the actual game. So, you know, the long story short of it is that I felt like I could be a massive help working at VHS directly and, and kind of starting to work on the game, channeling all the knowledge I knew about, you know, how the game worked algorithmically. You know, we had done extensive data analysis trying to figure out how everything worked. Um, I joined VHS uh, in July of 2022 and immediately went on to the live operations team, which at that time was like a fledgling group trying to figure out basically how to make tournaments um, this like reward driven, sustainable, you know, economy within the game, because basically Zed had this situation where we had this massive influx of capital from the initial mints, right? And they had structured it so that a percentage of that would go to this player treasury that could be distributed through rewards and events, you know, as long as it was there and hopefully that would, you know, generate again. And they needed all of these kind of revenue and business models from that initial success because this is like, I'm sure you're aware, like many companies had this initial period where they had this massive influx of capital. Okay. And then the, in that market, everybody wanted to just hire, 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 right? Oh my God, we need to scale. Oh my God, we need to secure our reach. We need to be you know, exactly clear on what our direction is as a product, as an organization. How do we operate? Are we remote? Are we in person? VHS went the remote route, obviously Australia based, mm -hmm. and then kind of grew into this really big organization, right? Very quickly, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Which, and, which was very, very common across. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. You know, everyone was doing that at that our time. Entire, any of our Web3 portfolio companies kind of went through that journey. Yeah, yeah. Everybody wanted, because, you know, it kind of became like whatever <clears throat> initial success you had, it becomes, okay, now we need to execute on a really high level because we just secured X millions of dollars in funding, right? And like, you know, VCs want to see return, right? Of course, it's just like the natural cycles I'll, of investment. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you though, this is why investors were so, gravitate so much, so greatly towards um, recurring revenue, towards SaaS businesses, because SaaS businesses have predictability, you know, right. and was the, the hard part about this is it was, the revenue was so high, so fast, so much greater than anything they've ever seen in any other industry, but the predictability was completely zero. Exactly. And that, that was the, the, I think that was the major learning experience that investors went through, but yeah, continue. Definitely. Because, you know, the initial value proposition of all of those mints, right, is that this is some level of a, a genesis, uh, a first mint, an early adopters, a pass, an access pass. The initial sale value proposition on every single project was exactly the same, the first, right, in the entire industry. That's all anyone wanted to talk about. But not enough time was being spent, you know, you've seen this industry-wide, on really understanding, like, one, the core value proposition that separates this industry from everything in Web2, you know, these billion-dollar companies that could stomp on anything if they wanted to, is the fact that there's verifiable asset ownership, Right. Because if you don't break that down and let you can even take, you know, Zed Run, for example, remove the ownership of the horses and there's millions of platforms like that. You can log on to anything and bet on any digital racehorse sim online, right? It's not, it, it, that in and of itself is a historical model, right? But the difference is two things, one ownership and then what you get for ownership, right? Yeah. Whether it's access to rewards or whether it's the ability to duplicate assets by a breeding mechanism, totally. which again, is like, that's the number one thing, right? And for us as a product, we've gone through multiple iterations of what this breeding algorithm needs to be. And that's when you start to enter into this realm of like, how do you really design a sustainable reward driven economy, right? That can scale. And two, that doesn't have um, this revolving door economics where it's very difficult to create that uh, upward trajectory for new players, right? And Zed suffered from that significantly, right? If you didn't have a Z1 or you didn't have a Genesis, the pathway to reaching that tranche of, of play and and you know, pathway to that tranche of racing was extremely unclear. So in, you know, 2022, what we went live with was the concept of progression, right? Our idea was that we could theoretically take this game where users were doing that level of discovery, right? And, and you know, that's what we perfected at Know Your Horses, trying to get people to understand their distance preference and where they should race as quickly as possible, right? Um, how they could tear up, how they could scale up, whether or not they should stop racing, race more. All of those concepts were solely user-driven at that time. That was our job. But then when you step away from that and you think of like as an organization trying to build revenue models, the idea is you should have, you know, engagement limiting factors as little as possible, right? Because you're looking for ways to recreate some level of scalability, uh, which didn't exist because you can't just mint forever, right? Like all the major projects found this, right? You could argue that that was the top in many ways, right? Board API Club has that initial mint, right? They make all this money. It goes crazy. Their secondary sales fees are crazy, right? Then they say to themselves, 
okay, we only have this subset of initial adopters who obviously have this really high risk proclivity. What do we do with them? Well, let's mint again, or let's just reward them another mint. And then let's provide another mint, right? But eventually the value proposition depreciates every single time you start to affect scarcity, right? Because these are like, you know, core economic principles. Totally. Zed had that problem because in the very beginning we had breeding, which was borderline unlimited, right? Like, I don't, if you remember those days, like when breeding yeah. first opened in April, 2021, like you literally, everyone was just breeding, getting a new horse, breeding it again, breeding it yeah. again, breeding it again, right? Mm -hmm. So throughout Zed's journey, um, we've needed to eventually focus on kind of a, a three-tiered process, right? Where the first process is sustainability. We need a game that is not a black hole for us financially or a black hole financially for the players by default, right? Which has revolving door economics or we're just burning treasury funds. Like we needed to dial back, especially as the market corrected, right? And take a really good hard look at what it meant to be um, sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. From there, you go to the idea of scalability, right? If you have a sustainable in-game economy, the next step is to scale it up, right? And then once you scale it up, the final step is monetization or profitability, right? Like how are we actually taking now something that's sustainable, something that we're scaling and getting new users into, they're engaging, they're enjoying it. We have a trajectory for growth. Now, how do we actually take a step at, um, you know, monetizing that and becoming this revenue generation machine that could sustain larger than the normal game cycle and larger than a, a current market economic cycle. Um, and that's kind of like the real, you know, like that's my sole purpose now in my current role, which is the director of monetization. Like my sole purpose is kind of evaluating Zed Run as an entire ecosystem, right? That and thinking about what can be built on top of this, what things algorithmically need to change, what need to change from, a, you know, our predicted user behavior models. Like what are we wanting players to do? Why are they doing it? How do we show new users what that value proposition is? Um, and how do we create this economy on top of that? that has access for content creation, wagering, promotions, ads, right? And that is the model, right? You build your own little in-game economy, right? That's, that's sustainable, it. works real good. And then we try to bring new users into it, make sure the learning curve's not too high, make sure there's upward mobility and trajectories, make sure there's a way to engage. Then you start to like aggressively look to think about monetizing. So we've had these kind of back and forth, um, you know, experiences about, when to engage in each of these individual steps because we have multiple product leaders the that the markets have changed substantially you know while trying to you know scale the company and figure out exactly how to manage burn and and do all of these organizational efforts where the user you know the player of the game is just looking at the way that they're playing and engaging right and we don't you know most companies and i'd say us especially we don't always do the best job of like letting people know what's happening organizationally right mm -hmm. and as a gamer you know I'm not thinking EA Sports, like, how is FIFA the exact same game again this year? You know, again, I'm burning packs and getting nothing for it. I haven't packed Ronaldo in 10 years. Like, you just, you say all these things over and over in your head, but you're never going to get a product director from FIFA come on and be like, yeah, you know, no one's packing Ronaldo this year. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Right, but Web3 and building in public, that happens all the yes, time. That's because people have a yeah, That's check my personal Twitter, you know, like oh, I, I'm involved in this, I'm involved in this, you know, as heavily as anybody. And that was always our model building, know your horses, kind of being that grassroots in touch with what people are interested in looking for. So, so that's, that's the biggest challenge, you know, something, something I wanted to touch on really quickly. So yeah. I felt, so I've always compared, I thought it was a very uh, interesting comparable was NBA Top Shot and Zed Run. Mm -hmm. I think they have a very interesting, um, we're investors in both companies, we're investors in Dapper, we're investors in Zed. I've stayed close to both businesses. I'm also, I would actually call myself a collector first on both of them. I probably have way more vested interest as a collector personally than I do in, as investing in general on either one. So like I've looked at it from a collector's perspective. And I think the first thing I've, I've always, what I've looked at with Top Shot, for example, that I've always, I say to Rob and Chris a lot that I would love us to love to see how Zed can evolve in this perspective is Top Shot, I think, had a very had a very similar challenge. I think to, let, let's talk about Top Shot for a second. Came out of the gates, very scarce, a lot of demand, um, high value, everything flew. Then, just like everyone was hiring rapidly, they started producing quantity rapidly because there was such, oh, so much demand. The quantity went up and uh, went up. Market went to shit because this is a scarcity game. Scarcity is at the foundational level of everything to me that's going to be successful in the blockchain world is going to be about scarcity. It's the same for art and collectibles and everything else that we value 
um, in, in this kind of in, the, in this type of way. Now, what I think Top Shot figured out over this past series, series four, was the idea of burning um, yes. and how burning um, is going to organically reduce supply, create opportunities for people to earn moments they've always wanted to purchase but never had the chance to. So it allows for reducing supply while continuing to provide um, value. And then they honed in on what were the moments people really want to be rewarded for most? Rookies, debuts, things that in the regular collectible world, people will be collecting as well. So what, I, what, I, what I've always found is that, and this is what I would love to see what your thoughts are on. To me, the beauty of Zed, of Zed was twofold. One, and this goes for Top Shot. There are passive collectors on Top Shot, and then there are the active collectors that do, you know, they participate in all the challenges, they do the burns, they do the games, etc. In Zed, there are also two types of collectors. I think there are the racers and breeders, and then there are the passive accumulators that want to acquire horses and play the stock market version of the game. And I think that we lost track of Zed when I said is that there that we focused heavily on the racers and lost track of the stock market players. And the stock market players are the whales in this world. And the players are the are the racers that deserve to earn their way while the players are while the stock market guys are putting money in and buying their way. Um, that comes down to the, the fact that Genesis horses, to me, should always be the most like when you see a Genesis horse, it should be absolutely the most like kind of like renowned asset because there's so few of them, and they're scarce. So I was interested to talk about in the most recent post that you guys um, uh, that the team wrote out, which I thought was fantastic. And uh, we'll, if we can drop a link in the comments on the on the YouTube channel. Um, we'll share the link to this article, but it was about, it was, it was titled Improve, Improving for the Future, and it brought mm -hmm. back a lot of the concepts that were foundational from the early days and brought them back into the future. And they talked about retiring and how that's going to play a role. Can you discuss how you think about managing that supply? Managing that supply? Yeah, so that's kind of been like the perennial issue, one industry-wide and certainly for Zedron, right? You know, Zedron has hundreds and thousands of horses in the game. And a significant portion of those came in that initial, you know, uh, up period where, you know, the breeding limitations weren't necessarily uh, in place yet. We didn't have these concepts of like uh, breeding decay, right? Like, so Genesis horses don't have breeding decay, but every breed type, and, you know, if you're not familiar with breed types, it's basically the hierarchical tranche of, of horses. As you breed, you depreciate breed type, right? So they were basically... Um, capped at certain points right so legendaries can breed 36 times exclusives 24 and the breed cycles are every month right so we had needed to start to uh institute some level of asset inflation control like immediately right i obviously wasn't a part of these decisions until you know the most recent ones with like breeding decay and the, uh, the ideas there and uh, obviously the burn mechanism is a brainchild of mine as well but like we needed to figure out a way to cull the racehorse population and constantly keep this kind of rising overall skill level amongst the population of active horses, um, which was happening anyway, because you know we're, you weren't racing a, in a paid race if your horse wasn't good, right? So we had this organic uh, concentration of assets that were actually active on the game. But then like you're saying, we have this entire subset uh, of horses, some good, some bad, some really, really bad, who are just kind of sitting here in the ether trying to figure out what, what they're meant to be done with, right? And when we thought about you know, the burn mechanism as like this philosophical concept, a lot of early projects, Axie Infinity, like a, a bunch of those ones who dealt with asset inflation as a, uh, that uh, response to that net network effect where there's like, you know, this huge K factor, you know, the users are coming from all over the place, just stepping in, breeding a horse and leaving, right? When that happened for us, we needed to think about a way to do that that was sustainable, right? It always goes back to that. So the idea is that if you're going to just allow a user to burn a horse for some percentage of, let's say an in-game currency, which is a lot of the models that people did. They minted their own token, X supply, here's our bonding curve, very complicated decentralized finance ideas that you know many groups have come up with, you know, with economists and with people who are really talented. At the end of the day, it's a very simple calculation, you know, uh, amount in versus amount out. You know, if you're pumping in more uh, currency to the players than what's being burned, the currency is going to devalue, right? It's just simple economics. So we needed to make sure that 
our token wasn't going to get destroyed by this idea of just dumping it out to people for burning assets, right? There needs to be some really, uh, you know, intuitive economic model that exists that allows for deflation to happen naturally and for there to be a rewards mechanism tied to deflation that doesn't tank the entire economy, right? It's this really complex balance. So what we came up with was this, was doubling down on this idea of super breeds, right? So super breeds are highly specialized racehorses that basically have either really extreme distance preferences or really extreme standard deviation, which are both oftentimes predictors of winning, right? So we wanted to take that model and allow you to basically take your horse, burn your horse and receive a catalyst, right? So these catalysts are basically tiered. Depending on how much your horse is raced, um, you will get a catalyst reflective of that level of engagement, right? So trying to reward engagement, trying to incentivize engagement, um, and then providing you an opportunity to return back and close this, what we call the core engagement loop, right? Breed, race, earn, burn, breed, right? Just back and forth in this core engagement loop. All great games always bring you back to some logical starting point so that you can re-engage with the magic that you fell in love with originally, right? So for us, we've never had a closed engagement loop. So that's like number one target, right? Making sure that the, the stop gaps that happen in your experience as a user aren't as active as they were. So think back all the way to 2021, we've had stop gaps as early as one race back when we had odds on the platform, you would race once, see your numerical odds and be like, well, I guess I'm done with this. Right. Yeah, totally. And for a game designer, right. Or a ecosystem manager, and, and that's, not great. Yeah, that's not great because the discovery period is one of the most powerful things. Totally. Additionally, from a philosophical perspective, discovery needs to have depth, but it can't have complication for no reason. Right. Absolutely. So in the very beginning designs of Zed, there was complication, right? We didn't really know like what standard deviation and variance were, how distance preference really behaved, how to build hierarchical like uh, comparisons between horses until Know Your Horses was born. Right. Totally. And we basically curve fit all of that knowledge learning curve into one digestible piece of work. But if you just went to Zed, you would never have had that. Right. So when we instituted uh, levels and progression in 2022, the idea there was that for new users coming into the game, the learning curve can't be so high that you churn immediately. Even if the value proposition is huge, let's say currently we give away $40,000 in, in prizes a week. Right. Even a value proposition that hard, like in that that um, that with that much potential could be an insurmountable task if you know that you have no idea and there's no on-site direction that can help you kind of progress through and the UX is, is complicated. So fixing that UX, instituting a burn mechanism that is sustainable, um, allows for organic asset deflation and brings you back to that original loop, which we wanna make the most fun part of the game, right? Breeding, discovery, the early racehorse experience, which is what we incentivize right now. That's our mm -hmm. core value proposition, right? Come on, experience what it's like to own a horse. Yeah, I'm also hoping that like you guys still have a, a substantial amount of Genesis horses in reserve that were never revealed. Like that's where I think that the winning or burning rewards could align with so that people have may not have the money to afford a Z1, but by burning all these horses that they've been accumulating over time or different various ways of competition and tournaments, et cetera, they can earn some of those, um, those horses. Totally. I thought that would be a very interesting model. I want to also bring up really quickly I think one of the biggest challenges also is that you guys never had your own market, that Zed's never had its own marketplace. Like yeah, Zed, yeah. Zed has never had, and, and OpenSea does it no justice. So in my, right. it's like, that's a huge, like, listen, that's a huge obstacle for all of gaming when it 100%. comes to a great, is that OpenSea is built for art and collectibles. It is very poorly set up and designed for gaming. And Definitely. unfortunately, although the gaming marketplaces have tried to come out, and I've seen them pitch to us quite a bit, there mm -hmm. isn't enough games to sustain yet. So we're Correct. kind of in patch 22, where if you don't build your own proprietary gaming marketplace, you're in a tough spot. Um, so, you know, where do we foresee that? And how do you think about the design and thought of, of a gaming marketplace? Yeah, for, you know, for an organization like ours, we're in a fortunate, fortunate situation where we can actually afford to develop that or, you know, use a third party company to integrate, uh, you know, something into the platform that can provide that experience for the player. That's our main focus right now, right? Like our number one thing we're working on trying to get out before the end of this year is an internal marketplace so that we can build this first time user experience where you come onto the platform, 
you may have your first race and then you're presented with the opportunity to own your own first horse which allows for, you know from an organizational perspective and like this is a classic model for you know sports bets and everybody having a first time offer right something that instantly tells this new person who comes onto the platform buy a horse for five dollars and get ten dollars in z token right that concept of here's a very powerful initial value proposition that will get you to stick get you con to convert onto the platform and once you're there we let the game do the work right we let the core engagement loop the thing that we've built that's really fun be the main driver of keeping them and being a sticky product but that initial period one you have to get people into web three you have to get people into the idea of cryptocurrencies you have to get people into the idea of individual asset ownership streamlining that experience is the number one thing that every main company needs to be thinking about right now and a model that i'm seeing that like has me fascinated personally is DraftKings rainmakers so if you've experienced rainmakers yet it's basically in my mind a blend of daily fantasy sports and ultimate team logic from madden fifa etc right you now have the ability to buy packs you get players and then you can place them into lineups to participate in every sunday monday you know thursday there's football so much now, right but while you're engaging in that experience you don't feel the web3 component right you have access to it at the bottom of the page they say would you like to you know send all of your assets to your own wallet they build this custodial wallet and keep that experience very siloed because it's intimidating right if you ask anybody who's not currently in let's call it an nft native right or web3 savvy they might say oh nfts like didn't people lose all that money on those right and you will not be able to break away from the cultural understanding of I the don't impact. It might be until Web2 IP brings them. Right. People have to follow. Right. So you have these market cycles, right, of like what actually pulls, you know, bear markets out, right? And if you think back to, you know, studied a bunch of economic cycles as a professional trader, when you think about what actually pulls an entire sector or an entire industry out of these markets, it's really good companies with really good value propositions for whatever services or products that they're offering. Right. We haven't yet to see one that can scale and actually garner that attention. So the thesis that I'm hearing is essentially that if getting that audience is very difficult for a grassroots Web3 company, because, again, you have to do all of the work of trying to build this product trust. Right. In a market that has been dictated pretty heavily by a massive speculative bubble. Right. It's just like it's classic stuff in order to get that done. Yeah, I do think that there needs to be one either you know, another cycle of an, like serious investment that drives uh, interest in specific products or a web two company that says it's worth it for us to step into this space. And then, and then hopefully the things is probably first in terms of like the gambling market. And I'm still waiting to see who's going to be the gaming company that says, ah, you know what? Our game could probably be this. Let's run it as a loss leader for a couple of years and see if it sticks. Totally. Right? totally. Yeah, I, I completely, I completely hear what you're saying there. Are you guys, have you guys entered into, have you figured out your position yet for how Zed and gambling will intersect? Because I know yeah, that's so what I can, gonna... Yeah, so um, I can only say so much, obviously, just because of, you know, the regulatory aspects of, course, of the space, of but we definitely see, let's call it like Zed as a spectacle, if you really zoom out, right? So if you really zoom out, one of the biggest differences between, let's say, the NFL and Zed, I know it's an insane comparison to make, but let's just do it, right? When you think about the NFL as an engager in the spectacle of the NFL, you don't actually participate in the event, right? Let's say you buy a ticket. While you're at a ticket, you're buying concessions or you're online, you're watching on TV, you're paying your cable bill, you're paying your streaming bill, uh, you're gambling on a game, you pick a player, you know, you try to, oh, you can blame the player if the player loses, right? But when you have asset ownership over the spectacle, now all of a sudden as a player in that game, there's no one to blame, right? You're just, you're involved. Your decisions are your own. You have control, right? You get to control the spectacle. Once we figure that process out and make that a sustainable and scalable ecosystem, now all of a sudden we can say, hey, you know, to any wagering partners around the world, right now, every five minutes, there's a Zed run race to bet on, right? We have insane coverage we have races running all the time huge volume we have something that you can bring your audience in to engage with that can be quick hitting exactly what they're looking for and then we start to build event cadences right think about uh horse racing you know traditional horse racing there's basically three events that like 90 plus percent of all wagers get placed on right the majority of people aren't like oh either you know there's this little like in town horse race next week you know i'm heading to the mammoth race course and i'm going crazy right there are people who do that Wait, we're, we're, of, in, we're, in, 
We're investing yeah. in a new, we're investing in a new company that's going to drive a whole innovation to horse, to real horse racing. Yeah, yeah. More about teams and uh, longevity and ownership because we find we found that whole modernization of horse racing is really neat. That's another topic for another day. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah but so go ahead. Go ahead. Jump in really quick. Like I know we spoke a lot about Zed Run, Drew. In the beginning, you spoke a lot about kind of the challenges in the space. How basically these gaming engines that have the IP will be able to grow users into Web three. So why haven't we seen any breakthrough Web three games yet? And have you guys? I feel like Zed Run was actually one of the biggest ones that I thought was you were seeing kind of these people in Web two jump into Web three because of it, but. Are there any out there currently, or why do you think there hasn't been any yet that have really gone mainstream? Yeah, I guess I guess it's kind of two main things, right? Like if you if you know what K factor is, and you think about like the organic uh, ability for products to get new users, the elimination of that as a result of a massive speculative bubble burst cannot be understated, right? Like the ability for me to go to my friend and be like, "Come join XYZ pro project. I just made." 50 bucks on it. Like you can have access to that. The driving motivational factor for the network effect in 2021 was not the concept of digital asset ownership. As much as people love to sell that it was, the driving factor was return on investment, right? The ability to make money from nothing, right? Which is one of the most powerful concepts on the planet. It's the reason why people buy stocks and people trade and people gamble and people do anything, right? As we start to move into the next era of that and utility and like getting rewarded for your engagement, uh, savvy investment decisions, choosing to play the right thing or how you're, you know, uh, executing with a level of skill on whatever you choose to get into um, is much more important. And I think that differentiation, trying to really get new eyes on the concept of why it's important to have digital asset ownership is always going to be coupled with whatever that individual assets value proposition is. And if products aren't extremely good at selling you what that is right away in the first like minute that you're on their site, you're going to turn, right? So I don't think that a lot of products have a really big understanding of like, what is that next wave value proposition that gets people interested, right? How do we sell asset ownership as this big thing? Projects have tried millions of different things. They've tried, oh, get your access to a digital event. Oh, it's art. It's a collectible scarcity. Oh, there's a game you can play to earn. You can join for free. You can borrow a horse, race it for free, earn XP, sell XP NFTs and make money. We have that free to play engagement loop, right? But the problem is getting through that first step of all of the different barriers to entry, Web3 as a concept, NFTs as a concept, cryptocurrencies as a, a currency you need to engage with, own digital wallets. Trying to streamline all of that is basically the the way that I think the, the first big one to scale on a massive level will do. And that's exactly what I think Rainmakers is doing the best, right? They're basically saying, you can play this and you don't even need to know it's Web3. It's not even necessarily important for you to know that. Yeah. And that's what I call like thematically Web 2.5, right? Yeah. And how do we, how do we softly onboard a generation into the concepts of digital asset ownership instead of yep. forcing them into it and then overlaying the value proposition after they already own? That's it's, the big differentiation. To, totally. Mind. It's interesting because at Knights of DGen, um, you know, we, you know, that's the NFT project that I'm one of the co-founders of. When we thought through our gaming experience, we, we built a mobile app. And the minute people sign up, they get a non-custodial wallet in the background. They get their first yeah, NFT exactly. token. It just happens automatically. Um, and then as they play the game, which they can play, whether they know it's Web3 or not, they also can then start using NFTs in the game, but still have no idea that those are even NFTs unless they want to bring them out. So we, you know, I have a very similar thesis. My last question would be around, let's put your investor hat on for a second. Sure. So you're an angel investor, you're a VC, um, you're looking at the gaming space right now in Web3. Uh, where where would you be looking to invest? Now, like we've with our recent investments, so like you know, in the beginning we were investing a little bit more in the games and the IP. What we've been investing in lately is almost exactly what you were saying: a lot of infrastructure, so things that facilitate the interoperability or the wallets and making it easy for Web two games to be portable, like Star in Stardust and One Earth Rising, or some of the investments we've made out of the Redbeard Syndicate into the gaming ecosystem. What are the types of things that you'd be looking for? Is it you know? Yeah, just give me like what what your where where have you seen anything also that you'd be really excited about? Yeah, I do think that's a great point. Like saying, you know, if you really dive deep into the technology, then you can start to look at like chains and you know the ability mm -hmm. to kind of mask the really difficult to understand experience. And I think that's a great idea, right? 
But the other thing that I'm like really hung up on now is like looking for people who are trying to overlay um, ownership without reinventing a business model, right? Because the problem that you're seeing right now is that people have asset ownership and now they're trying to curve fit a business model to the ownership as opposed to it blending really seamlessly, right? And if you think back to like, you know, traditional games, microtransactions, ultimate team, there already are so many extremely effective models that have ownership, but at the end of the year, they just slice you out of it, right? Exactly what you were talking to before about the constant cycles of FIFA, Madden, some of the most popular games ever where even well, like CSGO. Why hasn't that translated that? Why has, why have the, like, why are we not seeing the easy microtransaction model appear in these games where it doesn't feel like you're, I almost feel like, oh no, if we have to sell them something again, it's like they're going to lose their minds because we keep selling the, but in other games, people sell them stuff all the time with no concern. Like, why is that? Yeah, I think honestly what that comes down to just flat out is whether or not it's fun to engage with, right? Uh, yeah. If your project is going ROI focused as a number one modality and it's saying like your only reason for being here as an engager or as a player is that if you're successful, you make money. That's why you're here, mm -hmm. right? You're not here to have fun. We don't even care if what you're doing is fun, right? What you're doing here is guided by whether or not you just bought a nice PFP that's going to go up in price. If it goes down, you're a failure, right? Oh, you just joined this game and you're racing horses. Oh, you lose money racing horses. You're a failure. Oh, you bred a horse. It's not good. You lost money on it, you're a failure, right? So you have those constant feedback loops telling people who are engaging in this space that they're like, you know, I, I, if, I, if I can't make money from this, why am I even here, right? And you can't have play to earn forever for everybody, right? Unless you have some really, you know, crazy sustainable business model that I'm not familiar with. So in my mind, it really comes down to like, you have to have a fun game that's different and really engaging and also capitalizes on the idea of overlaying ownership into that without you having to really feel it, right? Knowing that when you do feel it, it becomes the stickiest thing you've ever had, right? So think about it. Like if I never owned Vanilla Bean, but I got to race her for a little bit and at the end they were like, hey, this is yours by the way. That would be like, oh my God, what an amazing moment for me, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, in terms of like fun, for a lot of people in the general market, like there's a lot of easier ways to get that daily dose of fun. Like you could go to a casino, you could watch sports, you could do all of these billion dollar industries that already exist. So I still think that there hasn't been enough trust instilled in the larger market that digital ownership and making sure that you're not basically being monopolized by whatever companies dictate your digital future. Uh, if you're not like thinking about that ending um, or a big you know, company says, hey, that doesn't need to be the status quo anymore. Um, we're going to release ourselves from the stranglehold that we've had on the economy in that respect like think about ea sports right if ea sports was like you know what this next fifa is our last fifa we're going to iterate on this every card that you've ever had in this game you get to keep as we iterate on the gameplay improve graphics and do all this stuff it's a horrible decision for them right because they have a billion plus dollar a year mark microtransaction market but instilling that level of confidence in their players instilling that level of confidence in a growing ecosystem that can evade the you know curse of time and the curse of normal business cycles um, is still missing. So yeah. I'm not totally sure, you know, what that looks like. And you know, I wish I knew. If I knew, I'd be you know at a VC somewhere probably. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that you know, for us at Zed, our main goal is again that kind of three pillared approach. Really make sure sustainability is there, and that our in-game economy has a reward-driven uh, gameplay loop that you can keep coming back to, and it feels rewarding every time you do it. Um, scaling, bringing on new users, making sure the UX is clean and that they know exactly why they're there and value propositions are clear. Um, and then the third thing would be profitability, building a really uh, solid revenue model with wagering on the outside, partnerships and promotions, and capitalizing on this ecosystem and spectacle that we've created uh, into the years to come. Yeah, awesome, Ryan. Well, thank you so much for joining and sharing your insights. I know that we could continue to go on and on, but where can people follow you? Like, look at your insights. What's your Twitter account or your? Yeah, yeah. My Twitter is just my full name at Ryan Trost. Um, and then for any official updates on the game, just follow at Zedron, um, and everything will be coming through there. Product updates, blogs, anything that we come up with. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening and make sure to tune in next week where we're going to be sharing more insights about our investments and strategies. Also make sure to like and subscribe to this channel and then also make sure to subscribe to our syndicate if you haven't yet. Drew started it about three years ago 
And we've invested in over 200 companies since. We have over 3,700 LPs. We invested in any type of frontier tech, space, robotics, biotech, about 60% of our investments have been Web3 crypto and the other 40% have been really just exciting technologies that are going to change the world. So we'll share that link. And if you guys have any questions, write them below. We'll make sure to respond or talk about them next week. But excited to have you all here and thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Bye. This has been a Red Beard Ventures production.